Welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about the mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. This podcast will be a slightly different episode to my usual Just Checking In pod. Everyone on this podcast by now, I should hope, knows that I'm a big Huddersfield Town fan. I've interviewed many Town fans about their mental health. But in April 2022, a Town fan called Daryl Hobson tragically died from liver cancer. At the time, the then Huddersfield manager, Carlos Corboran, held up a shirt with his name at the last home game of the season and offered his support to Daz in what many in his close circle knew was his final days of life. I wanted to celebrate Daz's life, and to do that, I'm checking back in with my friend Ollie Fisher, who was a close friend of Daz's, largely because of the bond they created through supporting town, through the highs, and, of course, a lot of the lows. We split this episode into four sections, Ollie and Daz's friendship, Daz's life and the person he was, when Daz became ill, and his death and the grieving process Ollie went through following that. Once that has finished, you'll hear a group of voice notes from Daz's friends and loved ones about the man he was and the legacy he's left. This is a pod for Daz, and this is how my conversation with Ollie Fisher about him went. Ollie Fisher, welcome back to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you for letting me check back in with you, mate. I know this pod is going to be quite a deep one and an emotional one, but as the listeners might be able to tell with my froggy voice, I had a, a bit of a big night last night. I went to a gig. Uh, it was a very good gig. The date didn't go as well, but we'll talk about that off air. Uh, <laughs> how are you, yeah. mate? How are you getting on? Yeah, good, mate. Yeah, nice long weekend to look forward to, which is always good. Went out last night, had some Greek food in a really dingy pub, and mm-hmm. you think, nah, this isn't going to be good food, and it was actually 10 out of 10. So that's always a bonus, and it's just around the corner. Never uh, judge a book by its cover, eh? Exactly, yeah. And Yorkshire lost in the cricket, so... Again, uh, we should say. Yeah, again, just again. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, looking forward to the playoff finals this weekend as well, of course. And that's it, life keeps moving. God, it's like town and Yorkshire just switch positions in regards to how shit we are on a, on a yearly basis, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'd be greedy if both were good at once. Yeah, true. They, we, we were for a time, weren't we? <laughs> yeah, we were. We were, yeah. we were. Happy days, happy days. This podcast is going to be a bit different to our usual ones mate as we kind of discussed in the whole process towards this pod and I hope it doesn't just help town fans you the listeners but I guess anyone who wants to know more about grief learn about grief and the journey one goes through with that so without further delay I ready to start the show and talk all about Daz yeah absolutely let's do him justice As I said in the intro, mate, we're going to split this podcast into four parts. And the first part is going to focus on yours and Daz's friendship. So tell me first about how you met and the bond you made through following and supporting town in the highs and the, as I said in the intro, 
a lot of lows. <laughs> yeah. I met Daz, first of all, through the Cowshed Loyal, which was a fan group that we set up back in 2014 with the aim of bringing more atmosphere to the stands. It was kind of a continental inspiration behind it. Just basically trying to improve the home experience for fans and, as I say, have a positive impact on the atmosphere. Started in the North Stand, which is the complete opposite end of the ground to where we are now. Those who've been to Huddersfield Stadium, I'm not sure there'll be many listening, but <laughs> now... now the you better. This is the only listeners we're going to get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the south stand, which is the away stand, is split in half and we're in there. And it was when we moved over to that stand that I really started to form friendships with some of the people who were running the group. And this was the 2016-17 season. Is the season, we should the say. Season, yeah. 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 The anniversary of that penalty that Schindler took is actually coming up very soon. That's how that season ended. The 10-year yeah. anniversary is coming up very soon, alarmingly, as well. <laughs> oh, my word. Yeah. <laughs> Less said the better, mate. Yeah, yeah, um, no, mate. yeah, so it was it was during that season that I think that things really began to take off. The first experience that I'd had in the South Stand was the last game of the season before when we got hammered by Brentford. Classic it was town. just like a party atmosphere. <laughs> and then I remember thinking, I want to come back in here. And there was a group of about 20 lads, shall we say, who were really committed in terms of making the banners and doing displays and starting the chants and what you might expect sort of a, a European ultras group to be like. And I sort of gradually throughout the season gravitated more and more towards the front. And it was through that that I met Daz, who was very involved at the time. He's, as I will keep repeating throughout this, he was the most passionate town fan. You know, he would do absolutely anything for the club, follow us anywhere and everywhere. So it was no surprise really that he was getting so involved with the group from the start. He used to love waving the big Bertha flags, like the huge ones that take two hands to to wave about. And um, as I sort of got further and further towards the front row, you obviously start striking up conversations with people that are in and around. And that's when I first got speaking to Daz. And also through that, we started chatting on social media as well. He was always very present on Twitter. And it was sort of looking down the tweets, realising that we had a lot of common interests, given that he was also a massive Yorkshire cricket fan. Yorkshire. Yorkshire. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was it. It was that season. And it was not obviously an instant process. It was sort of throughout the course of that season that I started getting more involved with the group helping out with some designs, helping out with displays. We organised a couple of away days as well. And it was just over that period of months that I became acquainted, uh, not only with Daz, but also with a, a lot of other people that are still my friends today. Mm. That's been one of the best experiences, the best processes was getting involved with the Cowshed Loyal and meeting other fans who wanted to make a difference. But yeah, that's where I uh, first met Daz and I guess we struck up our kind of friendship. As I said, those away trips that we went on as a group where you get a chance to learn a bit more about each other and stuff, it, it just kind of went from there, really. So just tell me about then, as you mentioned, the 2016-17 promotion season, the season. For most town fans who are under the age of 50, I would say, maybe 55, it is probably the best year of most of our lives, like in regards to football, career, fan career. For the listeners who obviously don't know and who might have never heard of Huddersfield Town, we got promotion to the Premier League from the Championship under then-manager David Wagner. And the magic for you, Ollie, started before the season even began. It was on a pre-season tour, like you said. So just take me back to your memories of that time and the time you spent together with Daz. Well, that pre-season tour 
that we went on was actually after the 2016-17 season. Oh, it was after it. Oh, okay. It was before the first Premier League season. So it was but, in between, right. So it's between yeah, the 17 but, and 18 season and 16 and 17. Got you. Yes, got you, got you. but yeah. that season, that pre-season before the 16-17 season, we did plenty of pre-season games. That was when we weren't quite as glamorous and we were doing like <laughs> Bury, Bury and Oldham and Rochdale and all. Yearly, and like, yearly yeah, trip to like Emily. Yeah. yeah, but I do distinctly remember one of the best pre-season friendlies was Bury. And it was an absolutely roasting hot day in July. There was me, a few others, and Daz who made the trip over, uh, obviously from Huddersfield to Manchester. We spent a couple of hours in a beer garden in Manchester, as you can imagine, chatting absolute nonsense and just sort of getting excited for the season ahead, you might say. But it was more so just like, you know what pre-season's like? You've spent a few weeks away from each other and then it's like, all right, brilliant, football's back. And also the weather's stunning and the pubs are there. And it's just, it was just great fun. Like some of my best memories about Huddersfield Town and about days out with mates have been through pre-season, which sounds bizarre, but maybe it's because the stakes are lower slash non-existent. As I say, maybe the weather plays a part. But yeah, I just distinctly remember being sat outside the Oyster Bar in Manchester, a big group of us around the table, and it was just such a great laugh. And I think maybe that was the moment when I kind of realised that, oh, these lads are all going to become really good mates. Given that I didn't know them a few months, maybe even a few weeks prior to that. And just realising that we all got on like a house on fire. And we had such an exciting season ahead as well, because I think people kind of got a feeling for what might happen. You know, we had a charismatic manager. We'd started to make some strides in terms of recruitment signing players that we all thought were smart and could potentially do something. We'd seen signs in the last part of the previous season that the playing style was going to improve as well. So I think we were all pretty excited going into the season anyway. But yeah, with the creation of the group, with so many of us now having, it might sound cringe, but like a new friendship group as well to go to games with. And also it coincided with me being at the age of like 20 as well. So you're like prime age for just going out and doing reckless stuff. Mm. Not reckless in the sense of like getting in bother, but just like early mornings, late nights on yeah. the on the booze. Mm. And um, and it, it just was all this big melting pot really of like, this could be a very memorable season. And, mm. and it proved to be that. On my notes, I've got, as you mentioned, one of those pre-season tours that you did between the survival season in the Premier League and the promotion from the Championship. And what came out of it was a very chaotic sounding hostel. So mm. take me back to your memories of that and, and Daz's role in that as well. <laughs> There's two hostel stories. I'll start, okay, I'll start, let's with, start the, with the first one. I'll start with the playoff final one, which came first chronologically. We were actually, me and my girlfriend were just discussing this earlier about hostels and why on earth would you stay in a hostel before a playoff final and stuff like that. But I was like, well, we did it. We, we booked as part, and, th- and this is again, another example of where the, the group was so important, Cowshed Loyal. We decided that we were all going to go down together we were basically going to do the weekend together. It was a bank holiday, as playoff finals always are, and town were playing on the Monday. And we travelled down on the Sunday, and we had a, a night out in Soho on the Sunday. We went for Chinese food. That's a story in itself. We all got sat around this big table. We'd all ordered. We had, like, two courses, as you can imagine, food. Did you go, how much for chicken chow, oh, man? What? <laughs> Bloody hell. Have you got John Smith's on? Oh, um, me angina. Oh. <laughs> Nearly walked out. Uh, Splitting the bill was another horrendous experience. But anyway, we've basically finished all of our food. And Daz has said throughout that he's not hungry. He's already eaten. He doesn't want anything. Well, that's fine. He's just going to sit there, you know. And then, of course, as we're getting ready to leave, he's like, no, actually, I fancy some chips. 
It's the classic, the classic, the classic. That's everywhere. What's Have you got chips? On? Yeah, I'll take it. What's going on, man? You know, like we're getting ready to leave and he's just ordered. So yeah, we, we sat and ate some chips. And I remember because it was a bank holiday and because Soho's a bit weird, a bit touristy, literally everywhere had closed by the time we left this restaurant. But we found this one cafe that was still open and was still serving beer. And we sat outside and we ordered, I think it was 23 pints of Paulana. Jesus. Uh, how, many guy, of them, how many of you were there? Probably just less than that, but we ordered that many just to be safe in case, like, <laughs> in case they shut, you know, and we wanted a couple of extras. And the guy was absolutely stunned. You know, he was, he was, he, he just didn't know what to do. But anyway, had those, paid up everything fine. We didn't run off. We didn't do a rumor. And we get back to this hostel. And uh, the reason that we booked the hostel was, one, it was cheap, obviously. It was like £30 for the night. And number two, they actually had a room that accommodated all of us, all 10 of our particular group. And we met others down there, but all 10 of that group that went down. I remember going with my mate Nathan and Cole to the hotel bar, which was still open. And we got chatting to some poor Australian girl who was like backpacking or whatever but she'd done it all on her own and I think she was just thankful of the company but she didn't really understand our accents anyway go back up to the room an absolute pandemonium has ensued one of the beds has been tipped over there's a suitcase <laughs> there's a suitcase strung all across the thing I still don't really know how it happened, to be honest. That your excuse, is it, on the pod? I don't know. I just don't know how it happened. I, well, it wasn't I've got no really. idea. Oh, if it were me, I'd have owned up by now because uh, <laughs> I thought it was pretty funny. But to come back into the room and that's what's happened, it wasn't my bed, thankfully. But I think one of them was Daz's bed. So uh, <laughs> it was just one of them. What can I say? We'd all had a few pints and whatnot. But just that entire that entire trip was absolutely incredible. Waking up the next morning, being a bit delicate at like nine o'clock and then getting out of the hostel and just heading straight to the Green Man pub. Again, all of us as a group, we were like some of the first ones in there at 10 o'clock when it opened and beers flowing, the sun was out. Like 10 o'clock, like, you absolute wrongins. I think the game kicked off at three. So that was a pretty late start for us. <laughs> We'd normally <laughs> been in the pub a bit earlier than that. But, you know, we'd been out the night before. We didn't want to overdo it. And, yeah, my family started joining. Those other people's family were coming down, obviously, to attend the game. It just became, like, this incredible precursor to what was an incredible final, you know. Yeah, that trip with the Chinese, with the late-night cafe hunting and the um, hostel antics were fantastic. And and then the other hostel, this was the pre-season tour that happened between us going up and our first season in the Premier League. Wagner decided to take us to Austria. He took us to two quite small towns to play these games, to play to play friendlies. It's like we're not going to Cornwall, isn't it? Yeah, it is, his... yeah. <laughs> Which I'm hoping might happen if he stays, by the way, because that would be a great trip. And I said to Sharon, I said to Sharon. <laughs> Got one more in me, Sharon. <laughs> Got one more in me. Um, me and a mate called Jan Mario, who, funnily enough, is another Huddersfield Town supporting AC Milan fan. There are three of us. Wow. as far as I'm aware, which is a real niche. Like, but like triplets. Yeah, uh, we decided to head out for the second friendly that we were playing, but Austria was really expensive to stay in, so we decided mm. to stay in Munich and had discovered, obviously through social media and through speaking to Daz, that he was doing both games. Well, at least we knew that there was someone else who was going to be there to travel down to the games with and stuff, and he'd gone out with his mate. And uh, me and Jan had stayed at like this this hotel, and it wasn't too far from where... Daz was staying and we didn't know anything about the place where he was staying he just said it's a big hostel it didn't really do it justice when he said that, it like that narrows that. it down it's yeah. a big hostel yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of them because when we rocked up 
it can only be described as like the in-betweeners campfire scene. It was very strange, very surreal. You've got a lot of bagpackers, and I don't want to generalise the bagpacking community, but they, they're they a bit sort of free spirit. What, uh, with, with soap? Yeah, no, not even that. It's just the whole, like, you know, you've got people from all different backgrounds, which is absolutely brilliant. There were a lot of Australians. There were some people from India who knew a lot about cricket, so we were talking, chewing their ear. Me and Daz were chewing their ear off about cricket for... For God knows how. Long. MS Droney, mate. Why does he do that batting? <laughs> Don't that even batting... know what that helicopter. What is that helicopter is? all about, mate? <laughs> and after initially being a bit sceptical, shall we say, we realised that the bar was serving huge beers for two euros. There was a bit of a sing-song, of course. Someone got their guitar out and oh, we asked for Wonderwall for and God they did sake. it. It was as stereotypical an mm. evening as you can imagine. I've got the image in my head now. I'm not sure I like it. <laughs> well, and when he says a big hostel, what he meant was a big tent. Um, what it was was a series of tents, sort of like, oh, I don't know. Well, like, I, I, like I going to Glasgow, like big teepees and stuff like essentially, that. Essentially, yeah, 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 stacked full, not full with bunk beds. There was a decent space in between them. But let's say that there might have been 30 bunk beds in the biggest tent. And that is an interesting dynamic when you've got people staggering back at all hours of the night. And it wasn't a good night's sleep, let's put it that way. But as I said, me and Jan were not actually staying there. So we were able, once the evening was done, just to walk back to our hotel and that was fine. And then when we had the second pre-season tour there, we went back out there and played in two slightly different locations. Me, Ash and Jack Payne went with two different lads this time. I had lined our trip up with Daz and the same mate, Josh Price, who we went out with. I said to him, I've got an idea. <laughs> I think we should stay in the big tent. <laughs> Probably looked big from a distance, didn't it? Like, how yeah, far yeah. away are they? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> quite literally was. And it was a bit of a free-for-all, essentially. Once you checked in, you didn't get allocated a bed. You just had to go and and sort of get your own fight <laughs> yeah essentially it was it was a real mixing pot it was like the g7 um and i managed to convince them anyway because i think it was like 20 euros a night that was one thing as well as it was and we, we were staying for six or seven nights it was because we were doing both games this time but my god what a laugh we had the, i believe you ordered just, a delivery to the hostel is that right that that essentially nearly got us burnt on the fire that was apparently as offensive a thing as you can do because the camp, I say camp, I don't know what to call it. it. The hostel had a kitchen and you were expected to kind of, because it was so cheap, you sort of had to get into the culture and like you go to the to the kitchen and be like, oh, I'll have that or that, you know. And it, it, it would be a fairly cheap meal, but it wouldn't be that great. There was like chicken stew and rice one night or you could have like veg curry and whatever. And it was it was fairly basic. And I think we were delicate from the night before as we often were. And one of us had, it was Daz actually, who had the bright idea of ordering some food into the thing. And we're like, surely no chance. We're not really near the centre of Munich. And I just don't think they're going to deliver it here as well, knowing what it is. They did. They did. The look of horror on the staff's faces and on the other, the other hostel stayers' faces when a massive stack of like six pizzas and loads of boxes of fried chicken and and chips showed up was a real picture. It was as if we'd honestly just started pissing everywhere. You know, it was, it was quite literally, apparently just goes completely against hostels slash camp culture. Especially in Germany, mate. Yeah, well, 
But then, of course, we'd got acquainted with some Americans because they were the loudest. And they were, um, apologies to any Americans listening, that's not a bad thing. It, it just means you're easier to spot and we know that you speak English. <laughs> um, and we got acquainted with these lads who were from Philadelphia, I want to say. They were absolutely fantastic, to be fair. And they ended up doing the same. So I think within 24 hours... We nearly shut down. Really the not helping kitchen. the image of the English and the Americans there. No, that's... no, maybe not. Maybe not. Um, oh dear. Yeah, but it, you know, it happened, and we went on a night out while we were out there to a club in Germany that was all of us, apart from a couple of the American lads, decided to show up in shorts, and they weren't let in because you know. It... Yeah. No shit. Yeah, basically they seemed shocked by the notion that they wouldn't be let in because it's 30 degrees and whatnot. We're in this nightclub, and I think it was 12 euros for a bottle of beer. So we knew we were only having one and going kind of thing. Next thing you know, we're up on stage dancing. And um, we realised, we clocked at one point, that all the songs were songs that we knew, but they changed the words. Like, it was either being shouted in German, or the words were completely wrong. We looked around and we realised it was like a kind of punk goth type place, really dark and dingy. There's a bloke in a sleeveless leather jacket with basically nothing underneath who oh got my let God. In, who was like, you know, swinging his shirt round his head. If we about to say something else there. No, <laughs> that was after. That was a different bar. Uh, and yeah, we just realised that we were way out of our depth. <laughs> Me and my England shirt causing all kinds of geopolitical tension in this dive bar in Munich and I think that particular night all of us we ended up getting back to the hostel at around about four or five o'clock in the morning and the bar was open so we ended up just staying up with this couple who were just traveling around Germany and we were sat on these hammocks drinking at six o'clock in the morning having never stopped throughout the day before and uh, just chatting absolute nonsense but do you know what like I would absolutely love to transport myself back to that moment. It just feels a million miles away from now. As I talked about before, we've been like young and reckless and it's not really that. It's more like you don't have as many responsibilities and your main Mm. focus is making memories Mm. and you don't really care what happens. You just go with the flow and you're kind of expected to make mistakes at that age. And, you know, I, I don't know. It's, I think it's just a kind of carefree thing that you have when you're in your early 20s, especially when you're going abroad and stuff. And for some people, it might be their first experience abroad, but just an incredibly memorable trip from start to finish. Could do hours on that particular trip alone, you know, getting the train down to train down to Austria and having to change somewhere. And loads of other town fans were with us and we'd taken over this cafe, basically. And there were all these town flags outside and it, it was as if there was a Huddersfield supporters club in Innsbruck. Watching town play football in the Alps. The second friendly, we were sort of looking at maybe getting on the pitch at full time, you know, to go and get some pictures with the players and stuff. Probably wasn't the brightest idea. But then we were sort of joking about it with the security guy who was in charge of the rope where the players had walked out onto the field. And at full time, we're like, oh, we're going to go on. And he was like, no, no, no. And he just opened the rope and let us on to the pitch, which might have got him sacked, I don't know. Uh, but then all the players came over and we literally met the entire playing squad. Got loads of photos of me and the lads from that. But yeah, Wagner and Schindler and stuff, they just couldn't do enough, really. We still haven't had anything close to that at town since, mm. I'm sure you'll agree, that bond yeah. between the players and the fans. These players had come, quite a lot of them had come from Germany, a lot had come from around Europe anyway, and yet they felt a duty to 
to establish a connection with the fans, you know, and that was probably the memory that, that stuck the most from, from that particular trip. It was just incredible. And do you know what the sad thing is? I don't feel like it's replicable. I mm. don't think I'll ever have another trip like that. And it was potentially the best lads holiday that I've been on. Let's move on to Daryl, the man now. So you said to me off air that, first of all, he knew everything and anything about sport. So just tell me about him, his life and this journey. Yeah, I met him when he was, hold on, I can probably work it out. Probably 26, I think, 26 years old. So I knew he was a bit older than me at the time. I didn't know an awful lot about his personal situation or anything like that until later on, you know, when we became really good mates. But I knew from instant impressions from early conversations and, as I say, social media played a big part, that he was just absolutely sport mad. As in, like, you know, those people where sport is their personality. Not in a bad way either. It's just, like, he lives for, for sport, be it, Football with town, obviously. Cricket with Yorkshire and England. But also he was well into rogue sports as well. Like he liked the NBA. I've got ESPN 8, the Ocho, in my head. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if it's, well, just, it if kinda... it's half for sport, we'll yeah. put it on. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, with the ball, he was interested in. No, he, he got quite into ice hockey, which was both of us weren't. I mean, I'm still I'm massively into ice hockey. But I remember, strangely, like one of the only people could have a conversation with about ice hockey. And NBA, he absolutely loved the NBA, particularly in, in sort of the last couple of years of his life. He got well into that, was a massive Toronto Raptors fan. And, and he sort of planned these trips to Toronto to go and take in games and stuff. And so, yeah, absolutely sport mad. And he was one of those, you know, it's like you've got a group of mates and maybe some of them have a reputation for being a bit flaky. Like they mm. won't do certain plans or you'll make plans and they won't follow through, blah, blah, blah. Daz was, he would always be there. It's like the pet meme, I'll be there no matter what. Or I can't remember what meme it is. Might be Mbappe. Anyway, yeah, he was there no matter what. Sometimes we'd have an impromptu night out in Huddersfield, for example, and text and he'd come down because he lived at Lockwood for a while with his mum and sister. And then uh, I think his sister moved out. So he lived with his mum for a while. And then I know that he had a spell of like moving around in quite quick succession. I think he went to Marsden and then he moved back. He lived in a really dodgy part of Lockwood as well, which, you know, can't have helped. And yeah, that was it really. Sportman, it makes it sound like there was nothing more to him, but that's not at all the case. It's just that most of our shared experiences, the majority of our conversations, the majority of our trips together happen to be built around sport. What about um, dad jokes? You told me he likes dad jokes. No, yeah. yeah. At opportune and inopportune moments. <laughs> yes, yeah. What yeah, ones can you actually share? <laughs> oh, no. Do you know what it was? I don't know if he used to get them from an account or whether he genuinely used to... Now, this was another thing as well. He kept saying to us that he was going to do a stand-up comedy gig because we used to genuinely laugh at some of the stuff he would come out with. Dad jokes-wise, I mean, it was like during a really tense moment of a town game, he'd just crack one of these down. We're like, come on, Daz, what, <laughs> what's going on? But he used to tweet a lot of them as well. So I, I might have to see if I can dig some out and fire them over to you. But mm. yeah, he loved the dad joke. And I don't think he ever did get to do the stand-up comedy gig. But we all said that we'd go down and watch, you know, if he, if he, if he did do it. Because, do you know what? I think it speaks a lot to his underlying character as well. Because it wasn't like he did it just for the sake of it or whatever. I think he did it to make people laugh, you know. He just wanted to put a smile on people's faces. And I think... There was the pantomime villain part of it as well, where it's like, you're known as the dad joke, man, and everyone groans whenever you come out with one. But 
at the same time were like, you know, that is on brand. But yeah, a very, very, very funny guy. Some of the stuff that he used to come out with, he didn't even know was funny. Yeah, just a, a hilarious bloke. And some of the stuff with, <laughs> this paints me in a bad light, but the most that I have ever, ever laughed, and I need to stress before I tell this story, that it was fully warranted. And you can edit this out if it takes me to <laughs> We'll see how this goes. <laughs> yeah. This was actually on the on the second trip to Austria Munich. And we've gone to this, you know what Germany's like? It's got these open squares where they've got bratwurst being cooked and you can go get a beer, sit down at these picnic benches, what have you. We did that. Me, Ash and Jack have got our bratwurst. We've got our beer. We just stood there putting sauce on and whatnot. Daz has been put in charge of Josh's... Um, Josh is this younger guy. He was he just turned 18, I think it was, but basically his mum would only let him come on this trip if Daz kind of chaperoned him, which was fair enough. It, I think it was his first time abroad and whatnot. So Daz was in charge of the money as a result. And Daz has gone up and ordered them both a bratwurst and a drink. And uh, Josh has kicked off. <laughs> He's saying, I didn't even want anything to eat. You're wasting my money. That's money that, you know, uh, you should He's have gone, it's me. not your money, ask your mum's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite literally, it was like, I didn't even want it. And he, he just kicked off big time. And we were like, you're being a bit of a knobhead here. Like, he's done something nice. Don't worry, I'll have it. I'll buy it off him, whatever. Don't worry about it. Anyway, he's kicked off this big fuss about being bought something. And he started swearing, basically. And Daz took exception to it. And the half pint of coke that he had left, he just threw it in. He just it at him. And he woke up and chose violence. violence yeah. Where stood there? It's like something from a film. You never actually see that happen. And where stood there, jaw on the floor. We can't believe what we've seen. But I think he fully had it coming. You know, the way that he moaned and moaned for ages about Daz trying to do something kind. And yeah, half a pint of coke gets dashed off his chest. Oh, at least it wasn't in his face, but yeah. No, well, maybe partly splashed. Splashback, yeah, sure. Maybe, yeah, whatever. But we've keeled over laughing. Uh, I didn't stop laughing for half an hour. As I say, it was like we just watched something from a movie unfold in front of us. And that's not something that was in his armory of comedy, perhaps. But it just happened to be one of the funniest moments I've ever seen. Another one, this lends more to misfortune again than deliberate comedic timing. But it was after we'd stayed up and it was the Arsenal last game, Wenger's farewell. And everyone was drinking on King Street outside the Spoons and outside King's Bar and stuff. And it kind of spilled over into the street because it's pedestrianised anyway. Anyway, this... Football starts getting kicked about. No one knows where it's come from, but it's landing and then people are drop kicking it in the air and people are trying to take a touch and whatnot. And it finally falls to Daz, who's been waiting for ages to take a swing at this ball. He gets it in his hands and as he's about to drop kick it, someone just comes in and little toe pokes it out the way and he takes a big swing at thin air and falls onto the deck. He saw the funny side of it. But again, it, one of those where you had to be there to see it in person, but it, it was like slapstick comedy. It was incredible. Took it well, but um, it was just how long he'd been waiting for this ball and then it, some random blow, nobody even knows who it was, just took the moment away from him and on the floor. I've got a mate of mine, Chris, who's still part of the cowshed now, who maintains to this day that if he'd have carried on laughing anymore, like his stomach would have imploded or something. He was in a, he was in a right mess. But yeah, there was the deliberate comedic stuff and then the, oh my God, there goes Daz again kind mm. of thing. I understand before he was diagnosed with cancer, we'll talk about that in just a second. He also tragically lost his mum to cancer and you said that he was 
or appeared to be on the surface at least, and I'm sure he was under the surface, mentally quite exhausted. So how did you see that affect him during this period? And then when he started to perhaps come out of that grief and go on this big journey of self-development, which sadly obviously wasn't able to fully come to fruition. Yeah, Daz was really close to his mum. As I said, he lived with her and I think sort of in the absence of a father figure as well, it's natural that he became very close to her. As I said, I didn't know too much about his personal circumstance. I think him and his mum basically were incredibly close. That's the bottom line of it. And when his mum got diagnosed with cancer, as you can imagine, I think Daz was pretty scared. You, you know, you don't know what what it means, first of all, because it's not just cancer as a blanket word. There's various types and there's various stages and there's various treatments that come with it and things like that. And it also happened to coincide with, with COVID, the sort of lockdown period as well. So that made it incredibly difficult because we couldn't go out and see him. We couldn't meet up and he could talk about it or not talk about it, whatever he wanted to do. So he was just kind of keeping us, me, updated through text and through direct messages and stuff about what was going on. It became apparent that it was incurable and that she was sadly going to pass away. And I don't know too much about how he felt at that point, to be honest. I find it difficult having those conversations via text message, Mm. you know. As I said, the timing couldn't have been any worse because it wasn't as if we could just go over to Huddersfield and meet up with him and like, how do you really feel? Or we cannot talk about it and can distract you from it, whatever it may be. Town obviously weren't there as a distraction either, which I think was incredibly difficult. We were pretty crap as well, so maybe it wouldn't have been a good distraction anyway. Yeah, there was that as well. (laughs) And yeah, I can't say so much as to whether he was absolutely at rock bottom. I didn't particularly get that impression because I think he was so active and he had such an active online community of friends and whatnot. He never went fully isolated and and I think having a support network in that sense helped during a difficult time. But then obviously when when she passed away, it must have been incredibly difficult for him. You know, he's close to his sister as well. He was close to his sister. So it helped having her there as well to grieve alongside, definitely. Ask anyone what it's like to lose their mum, especially when you're close. It must be the most difficult thing in the world, as I say, especially during the times that we were living in. Perhaps there was a point, and as I say, I don't know this, he he never said this, but perhaps there was a point where when you realise that it's incurable and unfortunately she isn't going to make it through this, maybe there becomes a period of acceptance before the grief rather than there being uncertainty as... We'll come on to with Daz, with him, there were a couple of moments of real hope that, oh, maybe this isn't incurable and, and something can be done. Yeah, perhaps when you already know the sad and you know heartbreaking conclusion that's about to come, maybe it allows you to process it in advance. But that would just be me speculating. I, I don't, you know, touch wood. I, I haven't really had to go through the loss of, I haven't had to go through the loss of a parent. But when Daz was so close to his mum, it must have been awful. And, and as you kind of alluded to, he didn't even really get much time to process it or to kind of get back on his feet in terms of life before he got diagnosed. Before we move on to his cancer, I've got more questions. So like I mentioned earlier, what changes did you see in Daz in regards to the self-development that he went on and that journey? I think he went from being, I think sounds cliche, but more appreciative of life. I noticed him saying things more and more about, he was quite religious 
so used to go to church on a Sunday, mm. but it wasn't particularly, I didn't get the impression that it was like a fully invested belief in Jesus Christ and the Lord. More like a community sort of exactly, angle. Yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. like that. But also I think he took certain aspects from religion and tried to kind of make that his character. Being charitable and, and seeing the positive in life and seeing positive in people. And I definitely saw that. And I think sometimes in your darkest moments, you can really take comfort from having a community like that. And the church were really important for him. And I, I think that that's perhaps where his character developed the most. He went from more the, I won't say happy-go-lucky, because that's not, but the man who was the absolute 100% jokester, Huddersfield Town and Yorkshire were his life, to perhaps realising that there's more to it. And he was very, very appreciative of, of life and he took a very, very positive outlook and that continued into his diagnosis in tr- and treatment. He was always glass half full. And I think that that can be quite difficult to do when you've been dealt such a shit hand, which he was. You know, the passing of his mother was was enough to turn you a bit resentful towards the world. But he seemed to go the other way and be like, it makes me glad of every single day that I've got kind of thing. That would be the main point, definitely. And also trying to do more and more experience-wise, as I say, a difficult time. We weren't allowed to travel and whatnot, but I remember speaking to him about all these trips that he was planning to go and watch England abroad in the West Indies, to go and watch NBA in, in Toronto, um, all these things that he, that he had in his mind that he wanted to do. And again, I think that was him wanting to squeeze every single drop out of life, having seen his mum's tragically taken early. So I, I would say when other people might go down the other route and and find things quite dark and start questioning what's the point when something like that's happened. He took the positive route and he really just tried to see the upside in everything. We've come to the difficult part of the podcast now, which is the final two parts of this discussion. And it's when Daz became ill in 2021. So tell me back to the beginning, if you can. When did he find out he was ill from your knowledge? and diagnosed and when did you find out he was ill and then unfortunately seriously ill so it was a really sort of strange period that led up to his formal diagnosis because again this was this was during covid times so everything was strange you know it was it was another world or at least it seems like another world to sort of where we are now back to normality hopefully but he'd been feeling some sort of back pain or pain around his midriff area I knew about this before, and he, he's saying, I keep going to hospital and, and trying to get checked, but I can't. They don't have any space, any any appointments for me to be able to do so. I'm low down on the priority list, basically, because of what mm. was going on with COVID. And the pain grew more and more severe to the extent that the time that he went to the hospital, when he finally got his scan, he said, I'm not leaving until you see me. I can't live like this. I'm in absolute agony. He thought it was his back. You know, he, he was feeling an awful lot of pain in his back and he didn't know what had happened but he just knew it wasn't good it was affecting his life and he was really struggling with it he said it was was agony at times and that's why final straw came and he's like I'm not going until you see to me and it was in September 2021 when he finally got a scan to see what was up with him and as I say it was a scan on what he thought was a back problem but they found tumours on his on his stomach that had come from an ulcer basically and then it became apparent that it was cancer and it was something really, really rare for his age. The specialist that he saw at the time said that he'd only seen very rare cases of it in the, I think it was like 
30, 40 years that he'd been working as a specialist. He'd, he'd only seen it a few times. It was it was rare for someone so young. And I think it was apparent from the start that it was pretty serious. Obviously, he had to start chemotherapy straight away, basically, to, to have a chance of stopping the spread. That was always the phrase that was used. It was about stopping the spread. So, yeah, that all happened in September 2021. He underwent, I think it was three rounds of chemotherapy. And it was, I mean... You know what chemotherapy does. Mm. It takes it all out of you, man. Like, mm. he became less active during that period. Didn't speak as much naturally because he was ill. You're knackered, aren't you? Yeah, yeah it completely knocks you out. Incredibly difficult, I can imagine, especially not knowing what the end result might be because the doctors did let him know that there's a chance that it might not work. So you're putting your body through all of that and it might not be able to stop the spread. And obviously he was really, really sad, most of all, about having to miss out on town games and life experience. He always said throughout, I'm going to kick cancer's ass and then that's it. I can't wait to go back to watching town in Yorkshire when we're allowed. And then sort of as the as the weeks went by, he revealed that it was stage four. Um, mm. I The whole thing was enlightening for me as well because I didn't know much about cancer. You could have told me it was stage two, stage three. I, I wouldn't have been able to tell you the difference. But stage four essentially means it's incurable, which is difficult. You know what doctors are like? They will try and put a positive slant on it and be like, we might be able to do this to extend your life. We might be able to do that. But essentially, he was told within, what would it be, three or four months of his diagnosis that it was terminal. This cancer was going to kill him. And it was a case of when, not if. And that that is, you know... That must be horrific. And then he got diagnosed in the September, and this was in the December. The idea of immunotherapy came about, which is different to chemotherapy, obviously. It's a completely different course of treatment. But this gave him a completely new wave of optimism because, again, the way that it had been sold to him is this might actually be the cure. Rather than it just being a case of, like, we're going to try and extend your life as much as possible, immunotherapy, which I believe was a fairly new procedure I'd obviously been clinically tested and whatnot, but... It's a Hail Mary, basically. Yeah. Yeah. But as I say, he, he became incredibly optimistic. He was like, chemotherapy was never going to be the cure, but immunotherapy might be. I've got to hope that this is this is it for me, and it works for me. And then he started another three cycles of, of chemotherapy just before Christmas in 2021, which I, be, I presume was a precursor because he wasn't booked in for the immunotherapy. I think this was like a precursor. And he, he also got COVID just before Christmas 2021 Oof. as well. Talk about a bloke with rotten luck. I mean, yeah. you laugh about it as gallows humour, but he really did not have a lot that went his way. <laughs> and yeah, he started on the... It was three cycles of three weeks with a bit of a break in between, obviously. So again, you're looking at another kind of... What would that be? Like a, a three-month commitment, basically, to, to chemotherapy. All while his health was naturally deteriorating as the cancer, unfortunately, had spread. By one point, I can't remember the exact month, he, he revealed. By this point as well, I must say, he was becoming less and less active on social media for, for obvious reasons. He was quite good at updating people with what was going on. By this point as well, he'd got quite a, an army of Twitter followers who were following his health, and especially town fans who'd learned about the sad news of his diagnosis and there was the 
There was the whole Twitter campaign on that front. So he'd been updating people who wanted to know how he was getting on. And then those updates became less and less frequent. You were finding out updates through people closer to him rather than than from him directly. But yeah, as of March 2022, I think it was around then, the cancer had spread to his liver. And that was the absolute resignation that, for want of a better phrase, the end is near. You know, they hadn't been able to stop the spread. It had spread to another major organ. Chemotherapy hadn't worked. And when it's stage four anyway, I think it's... it's. I, I don't know. Maybe this speaks volumes about the kind of person that Daz was, but he was he was never giving up the fight, you know. Mm. He, he always believed that something would come along that would, would help him kick cancer's ass, as he said repeatedly. But... Unfortunately, I think, you know, from from the early diagnosis, it was obvious it was severe. Stage four is severe. They can try and do things to, to stop it, to slow it down. But ultimately, you know, it's going to shorten your life. It was in April 2022 when things really deteriorated for him. He started having to use a wheelchair. He looked really ill as well. I think that was, I mean, you're going to, aren't you? Obviously, you're going to look really ill. But like he was, he was a skeleton by this point. And it is, it's absolutely harrowing to see, really, someone who was the life of the party have the life drained out of them slowly mm, literally, over time. Yeah. Quite literally, yeah. yeah. It is it is horrendous. And and yeah, it was he let everyone know that he was going into a hospice or rather, sorry, the hospital were talking to him about the idea of going into a hospice, which for those who don't know is basically end of life care. And, and it's to make you comfortable in your final days. And it was April 28th of 2022 that he passed away. He had his sister and his close friends by his side. So, yeah, that was it. I mean, to be honest, it was from the from the update about the hospice that you kind of knew things were, were close, having mm. had friends who've had relatives and people sort of close to the family and, and you hear the word hospice and you know that's that's what it means unfortunately and that's when you start to process things a little bit but yeah that was uh don't know what to say it was grim grim mm. really the moment you found out as well you talked about the impact of that news and and his deterioration impacting others around him not just daz but the moment you found out that daz's cancer was terminal was a pretty dark day for you and it should have been a, a pretty good day for you i'm right in saying with you and your partner jordan friend of the pod obviously so how did it go from being a very good day to that dark day and and also just tell me about this discussion you had just about life and the the finality of it as well do you know i, I mean I, I vividly remember that conversation that we had and it is probably one of the most important conversations i've ever had in my life but we were literally just just laying there in bed it was on the day that it, or certainly it was around the day that I'd found out that, that it was that it was terminal. Obviously, I want to say there was an absolute day where you're like, right, this is it. It's definitely like you gather things from before, you piece things together. And it had been mentioned before. But yeah, on that particular day, I, I remember we sat and we laid in bed for must have been about an hour. I was just talking through all the memories that I have with him for whatever the first half. But then. The second half, kind of like how he had been towards after his diagnosis and up until the end of his life, about just how precious everything is. Just like being here in in this moment right now, even right now talking to you is a miracle. It was an incredibly deep conversation. Not like what is the meaning of life and stuff, but like we need to 
treasure everything that we've got, but also make the most of everything that's to come because you never ever know what's around the corner. It's so sad that it had to be Daz's life and Daz's passing that sort of makes you realise that. I think it's losing a friend who was so young and still had so much life ahead of them and so many plans and so many things that they wanted to do that it just forces you to reflect as we did in that conversation about, okay, we can't take anything for granted, first of all. Tell everybody that you love them every day. Let's plan things. Let's do things. Let's squeeze everything out of life because ultimately we're all on a finite scale and we're all ticking towards the end. We just don't know when that end's going to be. So it's so important that we cherish what we have. But also, I think, especially, you know, when town players and the majority of the town fan base became aware of it with the whole Pray for Daz Twitter campaign that went around and stuff, I think there were a lot of honest conversations that were had, especially when it comes to sort of like the Cowshed Loyal, it wasn't just a conversation me and Jordan had. It was just sort of like, you know, there were three people who were close to the group who had unfortunately passed since the mm. group started in 2014. And that's tough. It's knock after knock. And it probably brought everybody closer as well. Because sometimes, and it's a shame that it is this way, it takes grief and it takes something so sad and harrowing to make you realise what you've got but also, you know, appreciate the friendships that you have. But yeah, that conversation that we had that night, it was a sad one, but it was a happy one, recalling all the memories that we'd made together. Jordan had also run a marathon, I should add for the listeners. That was the day that she ran a marathon. So that's why it was a good day, I'm Ryan's yeah. saying, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Hang on a minute. Run something. Maybe not, not a marathon, marathon, but something. Some sort a... of achievement. Yes, yeah, it yeah. was. Yeah. Yeah, that's right, that's right. I also remember having a, a very short conversation because you just mentioned marathon there. And this was the London Marathon in, it must have been 2021. can't remember. Anyway, my mum's friend was was running it. And it was me, my mum and Jordan who were trying to like kind of follow her around and, you know, give over the water and the gels and whatnot as we're going around. And it was when there'd just been an update about Daz's cancer and about it being terminal. And we were on a train to go from one viewing point to the next and my mum just kind of asked me about it and how I was feeling and sort of said, oh, that that's sad because he, he lost his mum not long ago, didn't he? And I think it was probably the first time that I'd, like, spoken out loud to somebody about it, or to, like, at least to my mum. And I just cried. I just, like, now you've said it like that, it's just this thought process of, it's the worst hand you can possibly be dealt, you know? And I, I just felt so sorry. And, uh, and yeah, I don't know. Maybe that maybe that's the exact moment when it really hit home, just trying to talk about it and not being able to. There were a few moments like that, a few honest conversations. And with us having moved down to London as well, that made everything more difficult, I think, because... It's not like we were close anymore. It's not like I could just pop over to the hospital and, and see him. And, uh, yeah, tough, tough, really. Mm. Um, but I, as I said, there were a lot of positives to be drawn from those conversations because you get things out that are, are normally kept within or maybe you haven't thought about at all, but they should be said. You know, you mm. should tell people that you love them. You should say, right, let's let's make the most of every second that we have. Before 
Daz died, then manager Carlos Corbran wrote a tweet. And I'll read it word for word because I think it's important to read it word for word. And he said, after reading your words, I would like to thank you for your amazing support. This is him talking to the fans uh-huh. and Daz. You are being a role model for us during the season. We hope our fight on the pitch gives you all the strength you need. You are not alone in this fight. Did you ever get to find out from Daz what that meant to him? And did that, given the fact that perhaps town fans weren't taking to Carlos maybe as much as Wagner did, that maybe it changed your opinion of him slightly or, or increased your opinion of him? Oh, well, yeah. The players could never do it enough for him. I think that's the that's the first thing. Harry Toffolo in particular was one mm. one of the guys who would constantly be in touch and would try to try to do things and you're right about the Wagner era was probably the closest that the, the fans and the players and the coach had been and the Corberan era perhaps hadn't, you know, really started that. Yeah, way. COVID didn't help with that either. But yeah. yeah, that's right, yeah. But when the Pray for Daz thing came around and once the club well the club knew, but like once they really started to officially push it and, you know, you you've got players tweeting their supportive messages, as you mentioned that one from Carlos there. And his post match interview, I should say, by the way, as well. After yes, Barnes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's incredible. I think first of all shows how valued Daz was. Everybody knew him, kind of thing, sort of like celebrity fan territory. Mm-hmm. Um, because, as I say, he was it's like you are now, mate. <laughs> <laughs> like that. Need to do more than ten games a season yeah. for that. And that's another point. He didn't miss a game. He did over hundred and something in a row. We both did actually. We did the streak of over hundred consecutive games. Yeah, that speaks volumes because they knew they knew who he was, you know. And it, it's obviously Towner. They're not a big club, really, as much as we like to think. You might get cancelled for that from some town yeah, fans. <laughs> no, but you know, we're not like a not like a Manchester United where when you go, you're one fan out of eighty thousand. Yeah, um, normally if someone says I'm a town fan, I'm like, do I know him or her? Yeah, must know you from <laughs> yeah, 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 those twenty odd thousand in there. But no, it, it was it's sort of like one of those things where as the weeks go by, you realise everyone's got a story about Daz. They've spoken to him somewhere, or they, he was at that away game with them, or. They'd seen this tweet from him or this joke or, you know, you realise it's a closer community than maybe what you thought at first. And yeah, particularly towards the end of the season. And sadly, I think it was when everyone realised that he was losing his fight, it all kind of ramped up and there was the banner at the end of the game that was held up. And as you mentioned, the, the stuff from Carlos there, which I think really showed how the club united behind I guess the hopes and the prayers that something might turn around and um, unfortunately it never did but I mean it'll it'll lament the world to him I don't know directly I I never spoke to him about what that meant to him because it was towards the end of his life unfortunately Mm. and and the updates were few and far between I would send Facebook messages and not get a reply and kind of get the image that but um, a guy called Paul Hurst was really really good at updating everybody throughout on Facebook because he would go and visit him I know that he saw it. Well, that's good. At least he saw it. Do you know what I mean? And I, I, yeah. I can only presume that that it'll have been surreal to him because mm. he's been away from that for so long. That's his club. That's Towns head coach. Those are Towns players. People that he probably has looked up to that know about him, know about his fight, know about his his situation. And... You know, I, I can only imagine that it caused him to summon whatever last bit of strength was there. I mean, um, Toff did his goal celebration, I think, shortly afterwards and referenced yeah. Daz, didn't he? And said in his tweet, that was for Daz. That's I for you, that, that's for yeah, you, Daz, it was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, incredibly emotional, really. 
You mentioned before about the connection between the players and, and the coach and the fans maybe not being there as much, but Christ, that brought everybody together. Mm. You know, really I think it showed a different side of Carlos as well. I think an emotional he obviously, side, you know, yeah. with the with the thick Castilian accent and you know, very methodical, mechanical in a lot of his post matches. And I think it showed a real emotion to Carlos. And obviously, when he brought out his son in the town shirt and brought out a shirt with Daz's name on it as well, I think I think maybe that had not shocked, but me woken up a few town fans who were kind of saying, "Oh, this manager doesn't care, or he's not as attached." Maybe they thought, actually, no, he. He actually does get it. He's different to Wagner and he always will be because he's more introverted and he's just, you know, Germans and Spaniards are different. But mm-hmm. I think it really, in my opinion, I think woke a few fans up that were perhaps on the fence and actually got behind him a bit more. Obviously, it didn't work in the end at Wembley, as we know, but I think it certainly was a was a good moment for sure. It shows that he was human. Yeah. You know? He feels the same emotions we do. Of course, he wouldn't profess to have known does as well as any of us but I, I think it, it showed his connection like he wanted to show his support and he wanted to make it clear that everybody at the club knows you know because I suppose clubs always got a balancing act because because basically Daz wasn't the only person who was the only town fan sorry who will have been fighting cancer at that sure. time it can become quite difficult then because it's like do you promote every single cause mm. or because Daz is kind of a unique case with how much he cares about the club and stuff. So I understand the difficult side of it there, but I think Carlos wanted to show as well that like the club knows, the players know. Like with Top and the celebration, as you mentioned, maybe it goes to show that they're giving a bit extra because of it, you know, which is a, a really, really incredible thing to think about, that they're taking to the field with him on their mind. And that is crazy, but... It was definitely the moment that, as you say, I think will have, will have flicked a switch in a lot of people's heads that um, Carlos, we might have your opinions on him as a head coach, which is a lot of people did at that point, but he is not... He's not a robot. Like, he, yeah. He's not a robot, that's what I was yeah. looking for. Yeah, he's yeah. not a robot. He, he feels the emotions and he understands the struggles that everyone was going through as well. I mm. think he, because he did it in front of the South Stand, I think he must have known that, that Daz was... You know, in the cowshed loyal, and I think he knew how important cowshed loyal were for the club, and you know, it's, it's all stuff that lends itself to being a unique case, really. But yeah, the club were magnificent. Let's move on to our final part, which is obviously Daz's death, and you said his death put everything back into reality. So that dream season with Carlos no longer seemed the dream it was because you had lost something far bigger. This is probably a difficult question, and I don't know if you'll definitely answer it but did the previous joy that you felt not feel immaterial but maybe perhaps just insignificant after Daz's death yeah a hundred percent yeah because you just keep thinking the same thing throughout he should have been there these should have been his memories as well if there's any fan who deserves to go through the elation of the Luton home game and there's anyone who deserves to see their team run out at Wembley again, it's him. Or Cosy um, commentating on the uh, Rhodes goal. <laughs> and it there, and it there! John Rhodes, King of Huddersfield! John Rhodes, King of Huddersfield! Absolutely unbelievable. I'm going to watch that once this is done. Um, yeah. yeah, it snaps everything back into reality because you start thinking about things, unfortunately, in kind of like a finite time scale. It's like, how many more times are we going to get to see Town win a playoff semi-final? How many more times are we going to get to go to Wembley and stuff? And, and basic down 50 for a Tetley. 
It were. Do you know what? I think it, it wasn't far off that for a pint of watered down piss of yeah. Amstel, that, as I think. That was the only it. one they had left, wasn't it? Yeah, it was like, just yeah. beer, seven pound! That seven pound! My God. <laughs> my God. But yeah, that was the overwhelming thought throughout is that he, he should be here. And then, do you know those phrases that you kind of tell yourself, like, oh, he'll be watching down, you know, he'll have seen that and stuff. It, you're kidding yourself. I really do respect the people who believe in like divine powers and they believe in the afterlife and stuff like that. And maybe this was a bit of a negative way to think about it. But as I say, I was just thinking, oh, he should have been here for this. Mm. You know, this would have been one of the best nights of his life. And yeah, of course you hope he saw it all from up there, but it snaps everything back into the reality in the, in the sense that, um, as I say, for me, it was losing somebody that was not that much older than me, a few years older than me, but just had all these plans and all these things that he wanted to do. And he had genuinely had so much passion for life and realising that his time had run out and he didn't get to do a lot of the things that he wanted to do. That's the worst part, isn't it? And then you start to think about yourself selfishly and you think, I don't want that to be me. You never mm. know. I could walk outside and... You could drop dead. Like, you, know, you have that thought, could I could drop, drop dead, dead tomorrow. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah. Frightening thought, really. You can look at it both um, ways. mm, That's happened to, uh, I won't mention his name, but mental health advocate I know, a friend of mine, he lost his wife and literally that thing happened. Like, you know, one day she she got taken into hospital and she died. And it's like, it's in a day. Like as simple as that. Like life is so, life can be snatched away from you so quickly. Yeah, it was essentially Um, just like, it's a miracle that we're here to begin with. When you mm. look at the origins of the universe and whatnot, but that's probably you went all Brian Cox there. If we look yeah. at the origins I've of been the reading, universe, been reading, we're essentially just amalgamations <laughs> of carbon, you know, made up from smashed up bits of other planets. And it, no, it really is a miracle that we're here to begin with. So life should be precious to everybody, no matter what has happened around you, mm. personal circumstances and whatnot. But I think when you go through a period of grieving, when you lose a friend who's not old, let's say that. Daz should have had another 50 years mm. in him, you know, to do all the things that he wanted to do. And yeah, it can go one or two ways. You can look for the positives and, and think, okay, that's a kick up the backside, an awful, horrendous kick up the backside, an incredibly sad one, but we're going to do it. We're going to book the trips that we wanted to do. We're going to go and see the things that we want to see. You start almost accelerating your life and realizing that we're all on borrowed time. And it's going to run out eventually, but it does make you make the most of your own life. Or you can go the other way and I think be quite cynically minded and think if that can happen to somebody like that, who's just lost their mum and had perhaps only just settled back into normality when realising they'd got stage four cancer as well and were, you know, it was, it was incurable, etc. What's the point of all this? You know, it can make you very nihilistic, can't it? You can can either go two ways, can't it? You can think that life's very unfair or you can think life's unfair and therefore I've got to make the most of it because who knows what could happen and be around the corner. I had a bit of both. I had days of both and I think it probably swings with the mood that you're in as Mm. well a little bit. But you have the days where you think, what are we all doing here? Mm. You know, what, what is the point of trying to plan for anything? Like, that's the way you can look at it. You can be like, what, what's the point in planning for something in 2024? Let's just see what's going on, where, where we are, and 
But then, yeah, the flip side and the more positive side of it is, no, if we want to go to Japan, let's get it booked. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, and it's I not trivialistic, you. like, holidays and stuff. It's not, it isn't that, but I'm just speaking, like, on a parallel with Daz, who, who had all these trips that he wanted to do. It's like, well, that kind of resonated because, you know, us as a couple, me personally, we've got things that we want to do and we're in a fortunate enough situation where we're still alive we still have life and mm. we can do these things. There's nothing stopping us apart from financially, yeah. maybe, but yeah. What broke me a little bit in our conversation off air, mate, is that as we alluded to in the earlier part of the pod, when it came to the struggles to him getting a diagnosis, he would sometimes say to you, if only they had seen me sooner. And these are all hypotheticals and we can never know for certain what would have happened if it had been caught. They could well have said, this is going to be staged. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. we can never tell what would happen. But did you ever think in the weeks after his death that if certain things had been different, he would still be here? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Because it was him saying it, you know. I think that's what made it hit home. Because as said before, like, as time went on, he became incredibly positive and optimistic about the situation. And for example, he really believed immunotherapy would be the cure. And he was so, so positive for a person in his situation who'd been dealt a hand as bad as that. But at the start, he was quite angry and understandably so, because he tried to be seen numerous times with the pains that he was having at the hospital and had been turned away for various reasons mostly due to lack of capacity and obviously with everything that was happening with COVID, it was difficult to get seen for anything. And I think at first he became quite resentful might be a strong word, but you know, as you, I think it's probably said, apt to be honest, mate. Maybe. Yeah. Just to, yeah. you know, I remember one of the things he, he used to do on Twitter not long after his diagnosis was talk about the effects of COVID on people who, who were looking at, people who've had a cancer diagnosis or people who needed cancer treatment. And I think he he had quite a negative mindset towards it in the, well, it's not negative. It's real. It was real. It was just stating reality, mate. Yeah. People were not getting treatment because of what was going on with COVID. And that's a whole separate thing. You know, I don't want to dive into that too much about what should take precedent. And yeah, there's inquiries for that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Ideally everybody gets seen to, but that didn't happen. And he got turned away. I don't know how many times, but it was definitely multiple times he went and said, I'm in pain and they couldn't see to him. And then it took him refusing to leave to finally get seen to. And that was when they found the extent of how bad things really were. Now, I'm no expert when it comes to cancer. It could be that the moment that the pain started was when it was quite far ahead. And it could well be that if he'd have been seen to the first time, it might still have been stage four, because I think it was over a period of of not many weeks, rather than it being one year it started and then where it could really develop from stage one to stage four. I'm, I'm no expert in cancer. I don't know how long it takes to go from stage one to stage four, but there was definitely this feeling that he had at first, as I say, it got more positive over time, that it could have been different if he'd have been seen too earlier and they could have cut it out earlier and they could have stopped the spread well before the severity of it would potentially have not been as bad and he could still be here. I don't know what you're really meant to do with that. I don't know what how you're meant to process something like that. 
because it's all ifs and buts. But when it's ifs and buts that sadly end with with someone losing their life, losing the battle, that's what makes his positive mindset all the more remarkable to me. Is it would have been so easy just to just to keep thinking the world's got it in for me, like everything has lined up against me. I've lost my mum. I've been diagnosed. You know, weeks after I wanted to be seen to with with this pain, the chemotherapy hasn't worked. Immunotherapy's come along as a potential hope. The next round of chemotherapy hasn't worked, and it would have been so easy to just give up. Just to think, whatever it is, the powers that be, especially with him being religious, you know, to just think what. Probably his faith got him through it, to be honest, mate. You'd yeah. probably like to think. Um, yeah, potentially. But yeah, that is something that sticks around, definitely, when I think about it. Would things have been different? The answer is none of us know. But he certainly had that mindset from the start. So I don't know, maybe he was told something, but he never let on that the doctor had said, if we'd have found this four weeks ago, it would be less severe. It was more just, I think, a theoretical. If I'd have been seen to that first time, perhaps it would have been less advanced, less severe, and the treatment course could have been less draining on me. I, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, it's one of those like existential questions, mm. like the lining up of the dominoes. Yeah. What happens if it would have happened? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Man. Let's talk about the grief more in depth now. So you sat just behind or just in front of Daz in the South Stand. So how did it feel the following season when, A, you got to go back into stadium, <laughs> into the ground, and when you turned up at your seat and he wasn't sat in front of you or behind you, sorry, or whatever it is. Yeah. Did it, I was, fe- um, did it feel, did it feel eerie? Yeah. I was at the end of the second row back and he was the seat in front. It'd been a strange period of been away from everybody because of COVID. I think the last game before was the Leeds game away when we lost two nil. That was obviously a huge gap. And then bang, we're back in the stadiums watching, watching home games and uh, yeah, show up normal seat. I used to walk along then, say hello to the lads who were a bit further away from where I sit, shake everybody's hand, blah, blah, blah. How are you doing? Been a long time. The classic your... chat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you get we're still your... social we're distancing out of town. town. We're, we're still, still fucking shite. shite. <laughs> and then, yeah, get there. And it's not only that Daz wasn't there. The seat was empty, if I remember rightly. And that is... Uh, yeah, like a lot of things blow through your mind at once then. Particularly, you used to have the routine of I'd go down, always shake his hand. That was like a thing. No bro hugs or anything like that. It was like, you're right, Daz, shake his hand. We'd usually talk, first of all, about what had happened to Yorkshire that week. Yeah. We'd usually lost. We fucking shite yeah. again. <laughs> and then we'd talk about England. We fucking shite yeah. again. <laughs> There's a running theme going on here. And what bets we'd got on for the day and stuff like that. Yeah, it was like a it was like the pre-match conversation, which always used to be be very fun. And that just didn't happen anymore. And I think when you lose, no matter how small a part of your 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 routine, isn't it? Pre-match routine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's always magnified, especially by the circumstances. It's not like he'd moved seat. It was like I've had that last ever conversation already with him. You know, it, it's, it's, it, yeah, it just all, it all hits you at once there because as I say, during COVID, everything's kind of done from a distance. You find this stuff out via text messages and you can't see each other. And then it's like this 
celebration of we're all back in the stadium together. And then it's like, we're not all back. You know, mm. it's all minus I never one. will be. I never will be. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 That was hard. That was hard. And, and having moved down to London as well, getting to games few and far between, not getting to as many of them, basically. It makes you appreciate more when we do go back up and, and seeing all the lads and stuff like that because it might be another two, three months before we're all back together again. And, yeah, just little things like that. As hard as that was, you also, because of work commitments, weren't able to attend Daz's funeral. Yeah. So, as a result, I imagine you couldn't get that definite or definitive closure. How hard was that? How did you find closure outside of it? Good question. Do you know, I think the fact that Daz's situation and, and his passing had made it to the entirety of the town environment, for want of a better phrase, helped because you were going on Twitter and seeing so many nice messages and everybody sharing their experiences with him, the character that he was and, and everything like that. That all really helped because then it becomes like a communal A collective process. grief, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and that really did, it really did help. And I don't know if there was one, and, and I don't think this happens, I, I, I don't know, but I don't think there was one particular moment of closure. I think it was, it was all kind of a, when you know that the situation isn't good and when you know that it's terminal, you have already prepared for what's about to happen mentally. Then when it kind of accelerated in that April and obviously leading up to his passing at the end of the month and everything that had happened with the, with the town players and kind of the message that had been sent from the club, that helped as well and that was prior to but I think it was positive in the sense that I felt that Daz had been shown or he knew how appreciated he was and hopefully he'd seen every message that got sent to him, you know, with be it love or shared experiences or, or just positivity, keep going. I know that through Twitter he spoke to a lot of other people who were going through cancer and I think that helped as well because then he could have those shared experiences with them and and then, yeah, I don't know if there was a moment when there was a definitive closure to it all. but perhaps Maybe, maybe it, this podcast, mate, who knows? <laughs> yeah, perhaps that is it. But as I say, the online community, because of being at a distance, the online community was huge for that because I think the most important thing to do, because the circumstances are tragic, but the outpouring of, of everything that comes afterwards is solely to try and put a positive spin on on everything and be like let's celebrate his life rather than mm. mourn and grieve and that really helps because it means that the closure is positive too i'm gutted that i didn't get to go to his funeral and you know maybe that would have been the moment where i definitively was like right that's it goodbye mate but at the same time funerals are funerals they can be quite dark and perhaps the fact that the lasting memory in the days afterwards that I have is all positive and maybe that helps mm. and maybe that's why it didn't wasn't like a brick wall yeah like yeah. shit kind of thing you mentioned just a bit earlier that obviously you moved to London you've lived here for a, a year or so now maybe a bit more and you moved for many reasons one to be with your partner support her new life, support your new life, new opportunities, I'm sure a host of other reasons. However, 
subconsciously or consciously was one reason, maybe a not an escape, but just a way to kind of get away from the grief? Hmm. That's something I've never really considered or thought about, but perhaps. I, I felt really... So you could compartmentalise it, basically. Yeah, yeah. Th- there's definitely that. So the move thing was never... It was always happening, basically, sure, sure. From, from the moment that John got her job. And actually. we just stressed that. I don't want, I don't want John to yeah. cancel, me, cancel me after <laughs> this post. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, she sat over there smiling. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was always happening. That was not like, a, I, I need to be here for this kind mm. of thing. I, I wanted to go as well. I'd always had in my mind that I was going to move away from, well, you move out your parents. And mm. first I had in my mind that I might move to some, somewhere like Manchester. Funnily enough, Daz had mentioned before that he was thinking about moving to Manchester just to have like a different experience. This was probably like 2017-ish. But as it turned out, yeah, took the leap directly to London. It was July 2021, I want to mm-hmm. say. Maybe August, actually. Like end of August. Yeah, that was always happening. I was really excited, absolutely buzzing to be coming down here and sort of starting a new life. Us two together, a bit of independence, doing our own thing. In my opinion, one of the best cities in the world, if not the best. You can do and, and have anything you want in London. So that was all incredibly positive. Then there was the flip side to it, and that is you're leaving everything you've ever known. You're leaving everything behind that has made you who you are up until that point. Perhaps a bit different for some people who go to university. For example, sure. Jordan went to university in Nottingham, but that was heavily impacted by COVID and stuff. I went to uni 10 minutes from where I lived, so I'd never lived away from home. I'd never really had those experiences. So it was, when they say, uprooting. Mm-hmm. Quite literally was uprooting. And that isn't just my mum and dad out there anymore. That's um, all my friends that I've grown up with in the local area. But more importantly, the thing that I look forward to every week I no longer can look forward to every week. and that As is... much as we should say. You still yeah. go to town games. Okay? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a completely different experience even still because mm. you have to plan around it. It has to mm. be planned massively in advance. There is no waking up and deciding I fancy going to Blackburn away. You know, it's like it's all got to be planned in advance and nothing's nothing is mm. that impromptu anymore. And obviously... Wait for Sky be... Sports to change bloody fixtures. <laughs> Can't be as daft anymore as well. Like yeah. I mentioned before about being young and carefree. That's all gone. You know, I'm I'm closer to 30 than 20 now, which is frightening. Join but, the club, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's all gone. The, the social aspect of the football. And, and perhaps, yeah, as a compartment of that, there was that. You're not just taking yourself away from, from home, from family, from, from friends. You're also, it's a completely fresh start in the sense that the difficulties that you might have had to face every day one of them being, you know, obviously Daz's battle and stuff. It's not like an out of sight, out of mind thing. I don't mean it like that at all. It's just, as you say, it gives me something else to focus on. It's like, right, we're down here now. Let's make this work. And you follow from afar. So, yeah, perhaps subconsciously that was part of it. And as a final question, mate, before we wrap up, if Daz was listening to this podcast, what do you think he would say to you? And what do you think you would say to him? Well, he'd say Yorkshire is shit. Um, <laughs> That's a given. That would be number one, I'll be yeah. totally honest. How many games are you not won in? 17? Well, we haven't won a red ball game for over a year. It's something like 17 or 18 games now. Yeah. Do you know what, though? Like, I joke about it. I, that's not a joke. The first thing he would he would say is about sport. 
<laughs> I mean, I do wish that he'd been here for the Warnock thing as well because I think yeah. he'd have really thrived off of that. I don't know. I... That is a really good question. A really good question. It's a strange way to think about it because it's like, am I telling him everything that I didn't get to say when he was here? Or... Are you just having a chat or, and a brew? Or, or yeah. would it just be yeah. a chat? Would it be like we were in the pub? Mm. You know, there's two ways of looking at it. I would like to think it would be the latter. Mm. Basball's great, is. mate. You'd yeah. love it. I don't know. I think, obviously, I know it's hypothetical and stuff, but you'd obviously say that he'd missed. The fact that we're here doing this now, talking about him, should show how much of a gaping hole he's left in quite a lot of people's lives. And it's not a case that that hole can be replaced. And I would probably show him the messages that were sent in after he passed away, because I think it would be important that he knew how loved and appreciated he was. As I know people sent stuff prior to that, and I hope he got to see them all, but when he did pass, it became something even bigger. I think it would be important that he knew that his battle spread way beyond town fans, well beyond that fans from clubs up and down the country and it wasn't just a football thing either it was other people who were battling cancer were sending in their messages and I think it would be important that he saw that as much as he might have felt like his own life deteriorated as that was happening the impact that he was having on others grew if that made sense Mm, the love didn't deteriorate no everything became more and more poignant and um, yeah yeah that's a really good question. It would t- take some time to sketch out a lot mm. of the things to say. But yeah, I just I hope he is watching if you believe in that kind of thing. And on that note, mate, Ollie Fisher, thank you very much for coming back on the Just Checking In pod to talk all about Daz, his life, and for checking in with me, mate. Thank you very much. It's been cathartic. And as you say, maybe this is this was an important thing to do. <laughs> Thank you to Ollie for telling me and you listeners all about Daz, his life and the person he was. What you're going to hear now is, as I mentioned in the intro, those voice notes from Daz's friends and loved ones about their feelings towards Daz, both in the town fan community and outside it. So here you go. It was a very sad moment when uh, when Daz left us. I mean, their main memory of him was be as a town fan. It would be a glitch in the matrix if you went to an away game and uh, you didn't come across him. He was a lovely lad. He loved to tell jokes that he'd researched on the internet and maybe tried to pass off as his own, but then I think maybe he just stopped that pretense. But yeah, no, he was uh, he was a, a lovely, kind-hearted lad and a loyal customer of HGSA Travel. So he got good taste in how he arrived to games, making sure he arrived at away games in style. And yeah, no, uh, you'll be missing it. Ray, I've got quite a uh, few good memories of Daz, to be fair, but one that sticks out the most was uh, Birmingham away. Last game of the season, there's a few of us dressed up in uh, dressing gowns with a Michael Effley mask on, and after that game, we're all just basically talking, walking back to train station. Daz is with us, but at the back at group. And out of nowhere, I get smacked for no reason makes a change but uh anyway so this is us lot in 
dressing gowns, <laughs> scrapping with a load of half-price hooligans. And then Dazza comes out of nowhere, windmilling both arms, flying into them to the point where they start running off. I'll always respect Daz for that. Never forget that. I've been asked to send some thoughts on Daz for event podcast. So firstly, me and Daz knew each other through Huddersfield Town Games, as many people did with Daz. Specifically for me, it was through the Cowshed Loyal Group. I'm one of the the guys who runs the group. And Daz was never massively involved in that side of things, but he was always kind of an ever-present figure at the front, was always stood on the front row. He got involved from time to time in, in kind of helping run and stuff, but mainly he was just sort of a member of, of the wider group and you could always rely on him to be there, singing away, waving the flags. Generally just a, a good, harmless lad, really. Me and him were not hugely close, but I guess close in the sense that a lot of town fans, you get to know the people around you, you have chat about the matches and whatnot, and that was probably sort of the extent of our relationship. But I think anybody asked would always say that he was just a good, polite guy, pretty quiet, always sort of on his phone, talking about his bets or whatever it was. But yeah, he's, he's one of those characters that a lot of people knew and he's obviously very missed. I think everybody would also probably say with Daz that he could be a bit daft and he, he was one of those personalities that have the tendency to say or do something that if somebody else said or did it, it might not be that funny. But if it was Daz, then there was often just something a bit a bit funnier about it. One memory in particular, which Ollie actually reminded me of, was it was actually kind of one of those you had to be there moments so it maybe doesn't translate all that great over voice but myself and Chris who's also involved in the group we were down King Street after the Arsenal home game uh, when survival had just been confirmed the week before against Chelsea so it was obviously a massive day out in Huddersfield for pretty much everybody everybody had obviously been on the drinks quite early sun was out it was just one of those days that I think everybody probably remembers as being a really decent day before, during and after the match. And Daz, Daz was around like as he always was. Me and Chris had been... We'd been stood around him, but not necessarily chatting with him at this point, I don't think. But he'd been trying for... As I recall it, he'd been trying for most of the time we'd been stood there to catch one of the footballs that were they were like balls and inflatables and stuff flying around I think in particular there was like a normal size five football which people kept pelting up in the air and then it had like bounce around and then somebody else had catch it and somebody else had pelt it up he'd been trying for ages to just either get hold or make contact with this ball and me and Chris had sort of registered that he was doing this, so we were, you know, we were just sort of keeping an eye on him doing it because it's just something funny about the way he was trying so hard for something so, I don't know, something so uh, trivial. And he finally got hold of this ball at one point, goodness knows after how long. He got hold of this ball, and obviously, like, we'd had a laugh and he was buzzing, like, ready, ready to volley this ball up in the air as everybody else had been doing as he was about to make contact with it with his foot, 
literally so such a simple thing, but somebody swiped their hand across and whacked it away. Daz obviously like kicked thin air, and it, that was literally it. But in the moment, given the amount of build up that got into it and the amount of drinks that we'd probably had as well, me and Chris both saw this sort of independently. And we were just in absolute stitches. I think it was one of those things that just everything had led up to it. And the fact that me and Chris both kind of saw it without necessarily acknowledging it at this point. And then we, like, <laughs> Chris, like, keeled over, just absolutely creasing at this this moment. And, yeah, one of those had to be their moments. But I think if you knew Daz, you would probably acknowledge and understand maybe where that hilarity came from. Yeah, it was a, a very, very funny, very funny character. And as I said earlier, very missed and um, much loved among the, the town community. So, yeah, hopefully this, this memory is among many others, sent by many other town fans and, and family and friends. So, yeah, that's my memory of Daz. Well, we have come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. A massive thank you to Ollie once again for checking back in with me and for talking so openly about his friend Daz, his life and his grief for him. As always, thank you to all the vendors who tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing at Vent, please consider supporting us by going to www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or buy a ticket to Just Checking In Podcast, the first live show. That's Friday, September 29th at Eaton Manor Rugby Club. So yeah, all of those links are on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Vent.